you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. Luke Parker Bowles moved to New York in 2005. Since then, his stellar career has included being chairman of Bastard North America, director of the Montclair Film Festival, as well as being on the board of Manhattan's Queen Elizabeth II September the 11th Memorial Garden. As a film and television industry expert, Luke puts the pieces together for great productions, mixing talent, content, and breakthrough formats that engage audiences in new ways. He's worked with A-list talent on both sides of the pond and walked in the shoes of pretty much every role on a film set, from talent manager and producer to the head of production companies, regularly delivering commercially successful and critically acclaimed content including my all-time fave, Love Actually. Luke, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. Thank you for having me, Hannah. It's very kind. The Love Actually is, it's, Richard Curtis is very, very lucky. I've yet to, I remember at the time when uh, we finished Love Actually, it just came out, everyone, the, the reviews were appalling. It's what? pretty much been part and parcel for Richard's films. Richard Curtis, who's the writer in, in uh, Four Weddings, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones, and he wrote and directed Love Actually. The reviews are horrible, and I don't think anyone ever doubted it was going to be such a big success. And now you, you mention, for those in the know, working title, the company that did it, or do you just say the words Love Actually, and suddenly, even at a cocktail party or whatever it is, where somebody's so bored of talking to you, all of a sudden... You can't let them go. But yes, thank you. Lovely introduction. I'm, I'd like a copy of that, please. Everybody's eyes light up when you talk about love, actually. <laughs> we could just do the whole thing on love, actually. Absolutely could. <laughs> yeah, I could just uh, hold up the uh, cards, couldn't yeah. I, yeah, for yeah, your questions. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder whether we could kick off by hearing a bit more about your career journey and how you came to be in New York. Came out of university and went straight to a company called ICM, where I was uh, an assistant to the head of ICM. So looked after a plethora of celebrities, including uh, Sam Mendes, Anthony Hopkins, Gary Oldman, which was a, a riveting uh, insight into getting the star bleep out of your system. I think you probably get what I'm talking about. And also sort of navigating the world of film and television and how it works. From there, I moved on to Working Title, uh, which I just talked about. But Working Title is basically the powerhouse of the UK film industry. Aside from uh, all of the Richard Kurtz movies, they also put, did Elizabeth. They've also done, they've done it. They, basically any great English film is, is really either them or film for. And then I met a lady on a trip to New York with two of my friends. And we long distance dated for two and a half years. And I gave up my job and I moved here and I became an independent film producer. So yes, it was love. It was love and we're still together. Thank goodness. Uh, married with three children. So uh, anyone who uh, is worried about long-term uh, relationships, uh, I'm a good example of it working, but but don't take my word for it. I, I've no, no idea about you. It may be a, a, a bad choice. Can I say love actually? Just bring it back. It's brilliant. You're brilliant. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about that early point in your career. And, and you talk about Starbleed, but you were the assistant to Duncan Heath. Yeah. 
Duncan Heath. Head of talent. Yeah, Duncan Heath is probably considered to be one of the most prolific, eccentric, nay bonkers human beings in the uh, film and television industry, I'd say in the world. Duncan has 10 dogs in the office that do their business everywhere. It's all seemingly complete chaos. He doesn't seem to, but it's there is such a, a honed mind in there. And such a fondness and he's just a brilliant brilliant man so i was very very lucky firstly get the job and to stay in the job it was it was really amazing and and at that time i mean i make it sound like it was it was the 60s but at that time there was there was really exciting stuff happening in the uk which i, I think happens all the time but particularly then with icm and with and with working title in particular they couldn't and they and they still can't go wrong it was amazing. And that sort of that quintessentially British IP. Four Weddings at a Funeral really put UK comedy on the map in America. And Hugh has continued to, or even though Richard will tell you he's the most miserable man in show business with all that money. But it really was, you know, it, it's a bellwether for that sort of comedy that that has now sort of seeped into American comedy as well. Not the sort of prattish British person, but the sort of quick-wittedness of it all, I think. The observation that Richard brings to his work. I think there are many people who have, have mirrored through comedic films what he's been doing. And I think that's great. Mm. I think it's amazing. I was going to ask you, actually, for your take on the the, the kind of similarities and differences in audience appreciation on both sides of the pond and you started to talk a little bit about that through four weddings and a funeral but have you got any other examples over your career of things that have gone down really well or I guess conversely films where you thought this is going to really nail it and actually people yeah. haven't got it so we, we did Bean with Rowan Atkinson and Bean was pretty successful in the UK not hugely successful in the US and bonkers successful in Asia. He is a hero. If you think about it, the great thing about Bean is that because he says very little, you don't have to do all of this, this redubbing and everything. He's so accessible, Rowan, with his just sort of Chaplin-esque performance. Listen, I think working title always know how, by and large, how the films are going to go. But I think that even that was a surprise, just how revered he is in Asia. And more broadly, panning out, how has the film and television industry changed over the years that you've been working in it? Well, I mean, I'd certainly say, you know, there's been a, a, a huge shift in the past five years, particularly in the advent of streaming mm. and how that's affected the industry. And, you know, you'll, you will have seen, I'm sure, recently seen Netflix's stock going down. The fact is, is that there is, there is such a mass of content that it's very difficult to be found now as, as a film or as a television program. And now films are on quote unquote TV and, you know, you're binging on something, but to watch all the things you want to see, you have to subscribe to six different accounts. You know, I think it has made it more difficult and more expensive for the consumer. I think it has made it more difficult for the production companies and particularly the directors trying to get their work out there 
a lot can get lost. This whole issue that Warner Brothers started with the day and date releasing the films on the same day as they're in the theatres. I'll get to why that's significant to me in a second. That looks to be going and they're now being a bigger window. But that really crippled the theatre distributors and operators because you were losing. It was a choice of, am I going to get off my couch or uh, to, to go into a movie theatre or will I just sit here? That's been the biggest change on a broader level. The quality of television coming out of the UK in the past five years, 10 years, is the greatest it's ever been. That's a very bold statement. But I mean, if you, if you just look at the number of shows which are loved here, whether they're crime dramas, whether they're comedies, whether they're whatever documentaries with Attenborough, who's always been amazing. The UK does television, maybe with Australia as well because they do some amazing stuff. I mean, listen, America does amazing things, but I, I think the UK, you can't beat them for the ideas and for the delivery and for the performances and the writing. It's really amazing. And you make a really interesting point about people choosing to stay on their sofa rather than go to theatres. I mean, this is going to be a controversial question, but do you think that theatres could one day become redundant? Well, I hope not. This is this is one thing I, this is why I alluded to it. I, in the past two years with five partners, started a movie exhibition company. It may seem ludicrous, but we did it pre-pandemic. And it was in essence looking at these movie theatres in these amazing areas that are closed and the residents had nowhere to go. I mean, the nearest movie theater is a 25 minute drive to go to a big box theater where people don't really want to go because, because of COVID. And so we, we started this, this film company and it's no more than four theaters in, in any of the places. So you feel safe. It's very environmentally aware first run and, and alcohol being a component mm. as well. It's going really well. It's going really, really well. So th the short answer is, as, a, as an operator now, I'm always looking at the 2019 numbers. That's always the, you know, that's the reference point. We are at about 62% of what 2019 was. And that may sound pretty depressing, but if you think about it, it was much, much lower. It takes a lot to get people out of two years of just flicking and flicking and flicking. The difference is, is that by going to the movie theatre, you're essentially being invited to somebody else's place and they're in control and they're there to present to you and you get that interaction in the dark that you don't get just fast forwarding, forwarding through a piece you don't want to watch. Or if you're hungry, you press pause and you go and get something and you lose the whole momentum of, of enjoying a film. So to that end, I, don't, I truly don't believe and I, I bloody well hope movie theaters don't go away because there is nothing like sharing a laugh or a fright or whatever it may be a, a tear in the dark with people you don't know you're you're making me remember watching titanic at a cinema in luton city center bawling my eyes out when i was a lot younger yeah uh, yeah and by yeah. the way listen dicaprio could have fitted on that <laughs> on that door I still, I still am, yeah. um, he's been interviewed about it and he just refuses to answer, but there was space on there. I mean, it was really martyrish yeah, to be absolutely honest. Absolutely was space. I wanted to talk about your work as the chairman of BAFTA North America. And we've talked a little bit about the importance of British film and TV out here and, and the, the, the relevance of it. But 
Can you talk a little bit about your work there? I know you spent a lot of time trying to usher the organisation into a new phase in terms of relevance and membership. Tell us a bit more about what you what you achieved in that period. Sure. I think I think at the time I joined BAFTA in London, the hub run by brilliantly by Amanda Berry and Kevin Price. BAFTA New York felt a little bit like a sort of fan club. And I say that with all, all due respect to Christina Thomas, who was running it at the time. It just wasn't very joined up with London, nor was LA. Also in LA, there was all of the stars there and everything. So so New York just sort of felt like the, the also ran in the situation. And I was very, very conscious pulling the three of them together. So we started doing that. And I'm pleased to say very much in parcel with, with my, my colleagues, Ariana Bocco and Kevin and Amanda. We have now done, is now BAFTA USA. And on the board of BAFTA UK sits a member from New York and from LA so that we, we are completely coordinated and we are doing the same programs and we are working with the same talent and we're not stepping on each other's toes. So suddenly it's, it's become this, and I, I do not take full credit for this, I, I really don't, but it's become this, not seamless, we're getting that, but a proper company. And as a 501c3, you need to be streamlined. It's hard enough to raise money for these things but if you're not completely organized and you're not completely joined up and the donors don't understand what the mission or the shape of it is, then you're really in trouble. So I like to think that I was helpful in that. And uh, I'm really glad that it's it's now become one because it was time. And I'd also like to hear more about your role as the director of the Montclair Film Festival, which I think is is focused mainly on bringing independent films and talent to a a wider audience. Tell us a bit about that. Now, I'm now able to say it. I live in New Jersey. It took a while. Mm. For a while, it was West New York. But uh, yes, I very happily uh, live in Montclair, New Jersey, which has more Brits and more producers than I think there probably are in, in London. The Montclair Film Festival was, was started by Bob Feinberg, is the CEO of WNET, and by Evie Colbert, who is a brilliant producer and also happens to be married to Stephen Cobber. I moved to Montclair a, a year into it, and it was very clear to me that there were some great things that were being done and some great things that could be done. And I really wanted to help to engineer how we were different from the other film festivals. And so, you know, it's really been our mission, and I really feel we have put Montclair on the map as this home for first-time independent writers, directors, actors to have an opportunity to show their work. I mean, that happens obviously on a bigger scale with Sundance or with New York Film Festival. You know, there is a, a bigger vetting process as to what's being shown. We're obviously not going to show anything that we receive, but I guess our lens is on the filmmaker uh, and the work and not necessarily the the final product because if you can see bits you can spot bits of brilliance in a film and it may not be a, a, a fully formed piece of work and they're the very people that you want to help particularly through our education pro process and give feedback at other festivals you can not get your film in there and you're 
sort of done. So no, I'm I'm very proud of, of the film festival. We managed to. It was no, it was low hanging fruit, I have to say, but we did ma- manage to honor my friend Richard Curtis um, at the film festival, and it was from his brilliant mind. We decided to do a live director commentary in the Wellmont Theatre with Richard and his girlfriend and muse Emma Freud on stage talking over the film and spotting all the mistakes talking about when Hugh was being grumpy and what he'd done that day and you know all of these different things which was just so much fun I managed luckily uh, and very kindly with the film festival to bisect that with uh, comic relief which is something that I do a lot of work with so anyway yeah it was it was it was really fun and we raised money for kids how much harder do you think it is now for independent film producers to put something on the map talked a little bit about streaming and i guess in a way maybe streaming has helped provide more of a platform but maybe there's just more out there and so it's harder to really get your voice heard it makes one almost talk out of both sides of their mouth obviously these streaming services want content so a lot of independent stuff is picked up on the other hand as we said before if you can't get to it what is the inclination for providers to continue to pick up as much content as possible it's difficult it is it's very difficult i still think it we're in such a transition that i couldn't really put my finger on whether it's easier or harder because it can sometimes be what's in vogue at the time because the the, the streamers want that or a genre that's really big, you know, for example, with Scandinavia and their Kel uh, Wallanders, there are lots of sort of copycats of that. Out of the UK, Bodyguard TV series do very well, political things from the UK, political thrillers. So I do think that there is a case right now of these streamers copying to a certain extent. But then you look at, there is there is a diff- difference between Netflix and Apple and Amazon. Netflix, I would put to one side and say that they are really just the sort of Amazon of content, right? It's ordered, it's nicely put into different things, but it's just, you can find anything on that. There's a much more curated experience with Apple and with Amazon, <laughs> even though I've described the other one as Amazon, Apple in particular probably has seven new shows this year. I think that's a really smart move. I think if you can be really pinpointing the really great content and not just trying to fill your service, then people will stick with that because they know that there's one show that you should be sticking with. I think that those services that are looking to do quality instead of quantity are the ones that are going to prevail. And, and this podcast is called Brits and the Big Apple, and you are a prominent Brit about town. Tell me a little bit about some of the other things that you do here, including being on the board of the Queen Elizabeth Garden. You were also recognised in terms of your British leadership from the St George's Society. How do you feel about being a Brit here in New York and what does that mean to you? I love being a Brit in New York. Um, there are three people who really sort of guided me into all of this because I knew that I wanted to be part of the British community, but without just having British friends and all of that. I wanted to give back, but not be sat in the pub watching my team Tottenham lose again. You know, meeting Isabel Carden or uh, Nick Howard or the sort of triumvirate Rich Sexton, who have really done so much to bring the UK to the front 
in New York, not in a self-serving manner. They've all done it. They've all done it in a very selfless manner. And Nick Howard and Isabel Carden in particular, who I was part of starting this garden down in downtown um, New York. In essence, after 9-11, it became very clear that there was no place for the families of the victims to mourn or remember or to have a service each year. Australia House really really just had a, a sort of conference room. And it seemed that there, that was wrong. That was really, really wrong. So it started off as we took this bit of land down in Hanover Square and uh, we had it built in, in the shape of the UK, roughly. And all of the plants are sourced for their, 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 their British plants. But it's this really beautiful, quiet in the chaos of Wall Street with, with trees and with nature uh, where people stop, sit to have their sandwiches at lunch and families go down there and tourists come by to see it and to see the, the names and the, just the vibe of the place. Uh, we were very, very lucky. So initially it was uh, called the, the British Garden at Hanover Square. But it became clear to us that these other members of the Commonwealth didn't have anywhere to, as I said, to, to mourn. So Her Majesty very, very kindly agreed to allow us to name the garden after her and so that we could bring in all the countries of the Commonwealth. Hence, it became the Queen Elizabeth September 11th Garden. And obviously, as we have Australia, India, and the, the whole plethora of Commonwealth countries that we honour their fallen and the families go there to, to grieve, remember, it's, it's a really amazing thing. And I, I don't, don't say that, just think that it, it's so symbolic, again, having that peace in perhaps one of the most chaotic cities in the world. So yeah, I'm really, really proud of that. Um, we've had the, obviously the Queen came over uh, to open it. It was the hottest day I've ever experienced in New York. And she was wearing gloves. Everyone was sweating. There was not... She walked past, said hello to her, and on her brow, there was not a single bit of perspiration whatsoever. And it was incredible. All of us fools just <laughs> dripping, and she was, she was in control. So, yeah, it's really, it's really great. And I advise people, go down and, and take a look, because there's some really lovely stuff happening in, in downtown Manhattan. Um, and check out Hanover Square, Queen Elizabeth Second Garden. It's beautiful. It's a really, um, as you say, it's a real oasis actually down there. And we had a very fitting memorial uh, ceremony last year for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Luke, I wonder if you could perhaps end this conversation by reflecting back over your career and, and picking out some of your career highlights or things that you're most proud of. I am most proud of uh, being a father of three, uh, having an amazing wife. I'm very proud that Hugh Grant's Audi and About a Boy has a number plate LPB, uh, which they did for me. So if you go back, and also that Adam Brooks, who wrote Bridget Jones 2, uh, had the lawyer called Charlie Parker Knowles. Not amazingly proud of it. I just think it's a bit of fun. It's sincerely pr proud to be 
part of this community. There are so many special people, as I said, doing things in New York selflessly. From having got here, God, far too long ago, I don't even want to talk about ages or anything, but having been here a long time and seeing um, how the consulate has developed, it's, it's chalk and cheese from back then to now. There's, there's not that there wasn't the passion or anything, they just we're in a different world now. And the connection that the British consulate, but it's, it's really, really great. We would not have been able to do, uh, to have the Queen Elizabeth Garden without the consulate and their support. And um, you guys continue to just like, knock it out of the park. I will say one thing I'm also very proud of, and this is a bit of a plug, is that uh, on Wednesday, May 25th, from 3.30 to 5.30, we will be celebrating the Queen's upcoming Platinum Jubilee down at Queen Elizabeth Garden, Hanover Square. Um, and we'll have speeches and we'll have anthems and music and children and face painting and It'll be amazing. It'll be really, really amazing. And it's the perfect environment to celebrate all the work Her Majesty's done. And I'm very proud of her as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for the unsolicited feedback as well. Luke Parker Bowles, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for tolerating me for half an hour. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.